Good morning, Victory. Good morning. Man, it is so good to be here in my home church in Tulsa. Everybody, just stay standing for a moment. I'm gonna, I'm gonna pray. Can I say that I really do feel like I'm a family member here. And uh, I'm so glad you called me uncle, because that's what I feel like. I, when, when um, I don't know, just a few years back, I just adopted all four of you as like, I'm gonna be your uncle and you could be my nephews and nieces. And so I'm so proud of you. So proud of both of you men standing in front of me, John and Paul. Thank you so much for what you're doing for the kingdom of God to glorify and lift up Jesus. You know, can I say this? Um, I'm about three years away from being 60 years old. And I figure I, you know, the Lord's kind of been dealing with me that I'm needed to move into that father role in the church. Do you understand what I'm saying? You're not, you don't have many fathers, the Bible says. And I just want to speak as a minute as a father in the church, okay? But I want to affirm Pastor Paul and Pastor Ashley. Can I, can I say this, that I listened to him share this vision and I realized that what God deposited and he began with Pastor Billy Joe and Sharon now is looming large inside of this man of God. When I see the passion and I hear the cry for souls, that was the cry of his dad. And when I stood here, it actually was at the Maybe Center, and I was the, to bring the final address at Billy Joe's memorial. I remember God gave a prophetic word, a word that I wasn't really pre-planning, but it came flowing out of me that his life was a seed and that his life going into the ground was going to produce a magnificent harvest. I do not believe God was surprised. I know he wasn't. And can we not believe that God can say, not only am I going to cause the spiritual seed and leadership to flow down, just as the natural. So God saw long ago, one of Billy Joe's and Sharon's sons is going to carry the mantle and reap the harvest of what Billy Joe and Sharon have planted so many seeds for. And so I just want to say this, that as a church, may I appeal to you to get behind the vision of this house. I want you to remember that we are a body. And if I look at my human body, I need every, every member of my body to get involved with what my head says to do. You know, my hands need to pick up my Bible. My liver is needed to keep my body clean. My lungs are needed for the air that my brain needs to be able to do things. And when you look at my body, it would be quite, quite weird if my hand said, you know, I'm kind of independent. When my head says, I want to pick up this book, my hand, my entire body cooperates. It takes the entire body, the local body, victory, to be able to accomplish what God has destined you to do. I'm going to say this, and I want it to go on record. The greatest days of this church are, are ahead of you. You are about to enter in the greatest years of ministry this church has ever experienced. The really good news is you're going to experience it. You're part of that body. And so I just want to commend you. I'm not losing your passion because I'm so glad you told the, the, the story of Sierra Leone. That was Pastor Billy Joe's heart. That, was, that is Pastor Sharon's heart. 
You see a school of fish, let's grab them. You know, be ready in season and out of season. And I know, I know what's going on behind the scenes. When Hillsong Channel calls, Pastor Paul goes, I don't even have enough sermons. I mean, we don't even have enough to get this thing going. That's out of season. That's being ready out of season. We're commanded to do that. And Paul writing to his young apprentice, Timothy, who was younger than Paul at the time, and pastoring a 40,000 member church in Ephesus, said, be ready in season and out. Man, you've done that. Here comes the call from heaven. Here comes the opportunity to touch 246 nations. You better believe this is a great day for victory. I'm so proud of you. I'm the uncle from out of town that says, I'm proud of you guys. Amen. Today, I'm gonna share with you a message that I believe will strengthen what you're called to do. I wanna ask in here, how many of you were at Word Explosion when I shared last summer? Let me see a show of hands. Don't be concerned, how many of you were not here? This is helping me to know how much I, okay, good, that's good. I just wanna ask a question right now. Do you want a message from me or do you want your life changed forever? You want your life changed forever? That's what we're gonna ask God for because your time is so valuable. And I don't want to see you coming out here just to hear a message today. So let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, thank you so much for this church that you've planted that has impacted not only this area, but the entire world. I'm asking today, Holy Spirit, that once again, you would literally invade this sanctuary, that you would reveal Jesus to us in a way like we've never known him before. And as you do this, may we go from glory to glory to glory as by the Spirit of the living God. For I decree, your kingdom has come within us, therefore your will shall be done in this place on earth as it is in heaven. Let it be a day that we'll never ever forget. And for this, we give you all the glory, the honor, and the praise, and the thanksgiving. And it's in Jesus' mighty, wonderful, majestic, holy, awesome, magnificent name that we pray. And everybody that agrees shouts. Come on, give him praise for what he's gonna do. Amen. Amen, amen, amen. You can be seated. You know, today I'm gonna share again, I did at the word explosion, but I'm gonna hit it from a different angle. I'm gonna share out of this book that I've written, the newest one called Good or God, Why Good Without God Isn't Enough. Today, in our society, and this mentality has even crept into the church. If we identify something as being good, we automatically assume it's of God. In other words, we've almost made good and God synonymous. Because after all, aren't we born with the inherent knowledge of what is right and what is wrong? But let me say this, if good is so obvious, why then does the book of Hebrews tell us that we have to have discernment to recognize the difference between good and evil? Why does King Solomon at the dawn of his reign, cry out, God, give your servant an understanding heart that I might be able to discern between good and evil. I mean, look at the context. He's about to take the throne of Israel. He's a very young man. And God appears to him and says, ask me anything you want. And this man cries out for the ability to tell the difference between good and evil. I don't think good is as obvious as we think it is. You would think it is a good idea to preserve the life of your friend, 
Peter does this with Jesus and gets sharply corrected. And Jesus says, you're seeing things merely from a human point of view, not from God's. If you remember, the rich young ruler comes running up to Jesus and he cries out, good teacher. What do I do to inherit eternal life? And before Jesus answers the all-important question of how to be saved, Jesus says, why do you call me good? Nobody's good but God. Now, is Jesus not good? No, he's perfect good. But what Jesus is saying is, you have a reference point for good. God has a reference point for good. The two are not one and the same. Don't put me in your category. You know, good is all about a reference point. You know, I'm a golfer. I really enjoy the sport. And I had a chance to play Augusta International a few years ago. That's where they play the Masters. And I remember on my first round, my whole team was praying for me. I shot a 75. I was really happy shooting 75 on my first round at Augusta National. But you know, a couple weeks ago when they had the Masters there, if Jordan Spieth would have shot a 75, it would have been a terrible round. It's all about a reference point. I remember when God first showed this to me. I was in Sweden. I had traveled there to speak to 6,000 leaders from over 60 nations, mostly Eastern Europe and the Middle East. And I remember when I landed, I had the whole day to pray in my room and I had judged a certain situation to be good. And I remember in my hotel room, the Holy Spirit said, no son, it's not good. And he gave me scripture to support what he had just said to me. And I I found myself getting in a little wrestling match with the Holy Spirit. And finally, I kind of put my foot down and said, but God, all the good that's come out of this situation. And then the Lord said this to me. And this is what really impacted me. He said, son, it wasn't the evil side of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that Eve was attracted to. It was the good side. And I remember when he said that to me. My Bible's laying on the bed in the hotel room in Sweden. I flew over to Genesis, and when I read these words, I want you to look at the words. When the woman saw the tree was good, the word good literally leapt up off the page. That it was pleasant, that it was desirable. She partook. And I'm standing there in that hotel room in shock. And the Holy Spirit says this to me. He said, son, there is a good that will lead people away from me. And I remember all of a sudden... I realized in that room how Jesus' words would be fulfilled whenever anybody asked Jesus what it was going to be like in our day, the day that we're living in, right before he returns. You know what the first thing he says is? Be careful that you are not deceived. And then he went on to say deception would become so powerful in our day that if possible, the elect would be deceived. Now, that's Christians, and that used to bother me. And I thought, how can Christians be deceived? And that day in my hotel room, I knew it. I said, Christians won't be deceived by satanic rock concerts or drug-infested parties. Christians, if possible, will be deceived with evil that is masked with good. Proverbs 14, 12 says, there is a way. There's a method. There's wisdom that seems right. It seems beneficial. It seems profitable. It seems acceptable. It seems good to a man. But it's in where it takes you is where you don't want to find yourself. This is why James comes along in the New Testament. And James makes this statement. He says, do not be deceived. Now that sounds like a commandment. But in reality, it's a promise. Do you know what James is saying here? 
He's saying, if you get this truth in you that I am about to share, you will become deceived proof. Now, I don't know about you, but in a day when Jesus tells me the deception will be so powerful that even if possible, Christians will be deceived, I want to know how to be deceived proof. Anybody in here agree with me on that one? So James says, do not be deceived. What's the truth, James? Here it is. Every good and every perfect gift comes from the, fa from the Father of lights, comes from above, and comes down from the Father of lights, of whom there's no variation or shadow of turning. Let me bring that more into today's English. What James is saying here is if you get this truth in you, you'll never, ever be deceived. What's the truth, James? Write this down. There's nothing good for you outside of God. That seems really simple, but it's really, really profound. I, thank you. I don't care how good it looks, how beneficial it seems, how profitable it appears, how acceptable it is today in society, how sweet she's been talking to you and how rude your wife has been talking to you. If it is contrary to the written word of God, it will ultimately bring you to a place you don't want to find yourself. That's a good place to clap. Then what is the reference point? Remember I said good is all about a reference point. What's a reference point? Paul tells Timothy some of the last words he writes on earth. He said all scripture. Everybody say all scripture. All scripture. Is inspired by God and useful to teach us what is true, what is good. And to make us realize what is wrong, bad in our lives. There you go. There's your reference point. Now look at it. He goes on to say it corrects us when we're wrong, bad. Somebody says, yeah, but John, I don't, I, don't, I don't like correction. Oh, really? Watch this. Finding directions to San Diego, California. Head west, then turn left on Highway 105. Rerouting. Make a U-turn and proceed to Red Rock okay, Ranch Drive. Red... Make a U-turn. I'm pretty sure I've been here before. I think I know what I'm doing. Make a U-turn and proceed Make to Red Rock Ranch Drive. Make a U-turn. Rerouting. Make a U-turn. Make a U-turn and proceed to Red Rock Ranch okay, Drive. Obviously, you don't know where you're going. All Make right. A -turn and proceed to Siri, Redfield if you don't know where you've been, how Make do you know where you're going? You don't. Make a U-turn. You know what? Do a U-turn. He wanted to go to San Diego. He ended up in Saskatchewan. So basically then, he who hates correction is stupid. Now I didn't say it. Let me show you what God says. Proverbs 12 verse one, he who hates correction. I mean, would you think about it? Why is correction so wonderful? Because if you're on the wrong road, it gets you on the right road. And if you're on the right road, it keeps you on the right road. So you don't end up in the tundra instead of San Diego in the beach. Good preaching, John. Amen. So scripture is our reference point. Now, I'm going to say this. I have never, to be honest with you, even imagined we could get to this place. 
But I have never seen the scripture so challenged, so attacked. Not just in society, I'm talking about inside the church. There are people leaving chapters out of the New Testament. And so can we talk about the scripture for just a couple minutes, for those of you that weren't at Word Explosion last year? Let's talk about the scripture, the Bible. 66 books written over the course of 1,500 years. Would you go back 1,500 years? If you go back 1,500 years, you're at 516 A.D. The British Empire hasn't even been thought of. Do you understand? Constantine of Rome was just 200 years earlier. That's a long time ago. 66 books written over 1,500 years by over 40 writers from three different continents in three different languages. Many of those writers didn't even live in the same generation. Many of them don't even know what the other guys wrote, yet you put it all together after 1,500 years and you get this perfectly harmonized book called the Bible. Come on. I mean, that's like going back to 516 AD, pick out a guy and say, write a chapter. Then go 100 years in another continent and another language, tell another guy to write another chapter. Then do this over 40 writers over the 1,500 years. Tw come to 2016. Tell me you got a book that makes any sense. But to make matters sweeter, if you look at the Old Testament, everybody say the Old Testament. 39 books written over 1,100 years, right? By several different writers. Many of these writers don't even live in the same generation. Many of them don't even know what the other guys wrote. With the last book of the Old Testament being written 400 years before Jesus is even born. Would you go back 400 years? There is no Tulsa. There's no... Do you understand? The pilgrims just got on the boat. That's a long time ago. The last book of the Old Testament is written 400 years before Jesus is even born. Now, many of these writers don't even live in the same generation, don't even know what the other guys wrote, made predictions about the coming Messiah, predictions like he'd be born in Bethlehem, he'd be called out of Egypt, he'd ride in Jerusalem on a donkey, he'd be betrayed, he'd be betrayed by a friend, he'd be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. Yeah, that's all in the Old Testament. That 30 pieces of silver be sold in a potter's field. Yeah, that's in the Old Testament. He'd be crucified, he'd be buried in brand new. There's over 300 of these predictions with the last one made 400 years before Jesus was born. And Jesus comes along and fulfills all 300 of these predictions. So there's this scientist that lived in the 20th century named Dr. Stoner. He was an expert in probability. Do you know what probability is? Simple probability, if I put, have a five-gallon paint bucket, nine white tennis balls, one yellow tennis ball, I shake them all up, blindfold somebody, say pick one ball out, the chance of picking out the one yellow tennis ball is one in ten. Correct? Right? Well, Dr. Stoner doesn't do his work alone. He employs 600 other scientists. And they go on this massive research pro project of what is the probability of any human being fulfilling these prophecies. A third party called the National American Scientific Council, <laughs> that's quite a third party, reviews their work and says not only is it accurate, it is conservative. So what I'm about to share with you is conservative. Dr. Stoner and his 600 scientists they, what they did is they picked eight prophecies. Here's the eight prophecies they picked. Number one, Christ to be born in Bethlehem. Micah writes that. Number two, Christ to be preceded by a messenger. Isaiah, Malachi, and different generations write that. Number three, Christ to enter Jerusalem on a donkey. Zechariah writes that. Christ to be betrayed by a friend, the psalmist, in a totally different generation writes that. So all these are different generations. And then here's the rest of the eight. They said, what are the chances that, now listen, that any human being on earth could fulfill these eight prophecies over the course of 2,000 years? from the time of Christ to the end of 2000. You know what the chances were after hours of calculations? One 
in 10 to the 17th power. What is that? That is a one with 17 zeros behind it. I don't even know that number. Do you even know? It's not bazillion, kajillion. I got news for you. But I can illustrate that number. If I have that many silver dollars, remember the silver dollar? If I have that many silver dollars, I have no place on earth to store them. I got to just spread them out all over the ground. If I spread them out on the ground, I'll cover the entire state of Texas two feet deep with silver dollars. Do you understand the entire state of Texas? Okay, now gather them all up, mark one of them, shuffle them all up, redistribute them over the entire state of Texas, blindfold a guy here in Tulsa, put him in a helicopter, start flying over Texas. He can go wherever the helicopter wants, still blindfolded. He says, let down. He picks one coin up. Chance of him picking up our one marked coin is a chance that any human being could fulfill eight of those prophecies, yet Jesus fulfilled all eight. That's where you clap. So Dr. Stoner said, what about 48 prophecies? What are the chances that any human being on earth could fulfill over 2,000 years, 48 of the prophecies? So after hours and hours of calculations, this is what they determined. The chances are 1 in 10 to the 157th power. That's a 1 with 157 zeros behind it. Anybody know that number? Now I can illustrate it, but I can't use the silver dollar. It's too big. I got to go down to a smaller item. I got to go down to an electron. Do you know how small an electron is? If I have a one-inch line of electrons, you know one inch is that big, straight line, straight line of electrons, and I start counting them right now, and I count 250 per minute, and I don't go to sleep, it will take me 19 million years to count the one-inch line of electrons. Now, if I have that many electrons, i got to make a big ball of electrons. You know how big this sphere of electrons would be? The diameter of that sphere, or the radius of that sphere, would be as far as man's ever seen into space. 13 billion light years. Did you see the Martian? It took five months just to go to Mars. Now, blindfold a guy, put him in a space shuttle at Cape Kennedy, launch him into space. He can get out at any point in time. He picks one electron out. Chance of picking out our one marked electron in the entire universe we know is the chance that any human being on Earth over 2,000 years could have fulfilled 48 of those prophecies. Now, can we, can we review what we just said here? You got 39 books written over 1,100 years by several different writers in different generations, and the many not knowing what the other guys wrote. You come, the last one's written 400 years before Jesus is born. There's 300 predictions made about the Messiah. Jesus comes along and fills all 300. And you're telling me the Bible doesn't apply to today. You're stupid. <laughs> now do you understand why the writer of Hebrews makes this statement? He says this, he says, we must. Now, I want you to look at the wording here. We must, not we should. Listen very carefully, not just carefully, to the truth we've heard or we may drift away from it. Now, how many of you know, now he's talking to believers. How many of you know drifting doesn't happen consciously? When I was a boy, I loved to fish. And I remember one time I was fishing in White Lake, Michigan, and uh, somebody's from Michigan. And so, uh, not a very happy time. Detroit Red Wings lost. But anyway, um, so anyway, uh, I'm fishing, right? And I forget to anchor. I'm so excited to fish. And my boat drifts so far. I mean, I look up 30 minutes later. I don't even recognize the shoreline because I was so busy fishing. And I'm like, where am I? I drifted so far and I didn't even know it. 
I mean, what if, what if, what if you had to cross a landmine field? Can I, can I, and there, there's thousands of landmines. Let's say this landmine field is 10 miles long, 10 miles wide. There's thousands of landmines buried underground. You step on one of them, you're dead. And somebody gives you a map showing you where every landmine is. How do you handle the map? You throw in your backpack, say, I'll read it if I got time. You kind of glance at it and go, I got this one, and take off. You do either of those, they're carrying you out in a body bag. I'm going to tell you what you're going to do. You're going to study that map like crazy. And then you're going to put it in a place easier to reach in your water bottle. And every couple steps, you're going to pull it out looking at it again. Let me tell you something. We are walking through a landmine field. It's called the world. And that's why we are told, thy word is a lamp unto my feet. It's a light unto my path. I've been reading the Bible for 20, or excuse me, 37 years. I'm reading the book of Deuteronomy and James right now. Can I tell you, I can't wait to get into those books every day. Why well, don't know why? Because I know the teacher. And every time the teacher, he's the Holy Spirit, reveals something new to me out of those books. It's my favorite time of the day when I have my tea and I'm sitting there reading out of Deuteronomy and James right now. He keeps it fresh. See, I, I, I'm telling you, if any of you are bored with reading the Word of God, it's because you don't talk to the teacher and ask him to help you. I don't open that Bible, because I'm going to tell you something, I watch people, they read the Bible, and they're weird. I mean, the Pharisees could quote the first five books of the Bible from memory, so if just reading it does it, it takes the teacher. Because they can't even recognize the Son of God when he's casting the devil out in front of their face. Good preaching, John. Amen. Thank you. When I wrote this book, I had three international ministers. If I said their names, you, you probably know all three. Three different cities, three different months. They said to me, they said, John, this is one of the most important books you've written for the body of Christ today. Now, first guy that said it to me, I thought, beta Satan. But yet, the presence of God was so strong, I was on my knees. And after the third guy said it to me, I said, okay, John, better take notice here. It was over a course of nine months. And I said, to, I, I asked the Lord, I said, God, why this book? Why is this book so important? And the Holy Spirit spoke so clearly. He said, it's a calibration book. Calibration, calibration. You calibrate a machine, you get accurate readings, right? But I thought, I better go a little further into it. So I started researching, and I found out that the word calibration is most frequently used in regard to gas detectors in a chemical factory. Are you following me? Federal law requires that every room in a chemical factory has to have a gas detector. Why? Because the little toxins in the air will poison the people for life It'll, and even kill people. And I know this firsthand because my dad worked for DuPont for 40 years and safety was crazy important to them. So I found out the number one manufacturer of these gas detectors is Honeywell. So I'll go to Honeywell's website. This is not a Christian website. Didn't read this on a Christian website. I'm just trying to figure out what calibration is, right? And I go to Honeywell's website, and Honeywell, I go to their search page, and I say, how do I calibrate your gas detector? And it brings me right to the page that the technicians use to calibrate the gas detectors. And in bold letters up in the top, I'm telling you the truth. You know what it said? We as the manufacturer strongly recommend that you calibrate these gas detectors daily. And they gave the reason in bold letters because the atmosphere in the chemical factory can corrupt the sensors. So you know how they calibrate them. I'm gonna simplify it now. 
They take the, ca- the, 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 the gas detectors down in every room in the chemical factory and they bring them into a clean air room. In the clean air room, they clean off the sensors, re-zero out the machine, put it out so they know they're going to get accurate readings. Well, your heart is your sensor. We live in a corrupt environment. It's called the world. Every day we should be going into a clean air environment. It's called the word of God and the presence of God. Why? The word washes us. It cleans our sensor. So that when we go back out into the world, we're not conformed to it. But we prove. Everybody say prove. See, it's not a formula. What is good and perfect and acceptable will of God. See, in all my traveling right now, all around the United States, I've been traveling nonstop for 25 years all over the world. Can I tell you, I have never, ever seen before the church being out of calibration like it is right now. I mean, it's crazy. One very well-known speaker has over 500 people, 500,000 people on her Facebook, really popular speaker, just posted something yesterday, just crazy. I'm like, what? About gender and about homosexuality and about transgender. And I'm like, wow, she's been influenced by the world. Wow, are we out of calibration right now? You know, I remember when I made a comment on my Facebook last year about our government's decision to legalize same-sex marriage. Now, can I say this? Please hear me out. I knew the government was going to do that. Most of us did. Come on. Why do we know that? Because they're alienated from the life of God. Their understanding is darkened. They're influenced by the God of this world. And Isaiah even told us in the last days they're going to call good, evil, evil, good. We knew that. This is what shocked me. I had over 4 million views on my Facebook. I had over 30,000 comments, and I couldn't believe how many Christians were applauding our government's decision. I thought, what? I mean, have we forgotten Paul's words in 1 Corinthians chapter 6? Look at these words. Don't you realize those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't fool yourselves. Don't be fooled by what's good, by what society says is good. Those who indulge in sexual sin. Now, whoa, stop. I'm first on the list. I was bound to pornography. I got married and I still was bound. I thought marrying the most beautiful girl to me in the world would make me free. It didn't. I was even more bound. And then I went into the ministry and I was bound. But you know, I had people who loved me and loved me enough to care and cared about me to not see me still enslaved to it. So on May the 5th, no, excuse me, May the 6th, 1985, I was set free from pornography, and I'm free today. So I was first on the list. So I'm not pointing fingers at anybody. I was first on the list. Those who indulge in sexual sin or worship idols, that's like, well, loving the Dallas Cowboys more than Jesus. Um, but not the Denver Broncos. Or committed, I'm, I'm joking, I'm joking. Or commit adultery. Oh, that's pretty obvious. Or practice homosexuality. Now, how can you have same-sex marriage 
and not practice homosexuality. That, that, that one I don't understand. Or are thieves, that's people or business people that say they're going to do something they don't. Um, or greedy people or drunkards or abusive or cheap people. None of these will inherit the kingdom of God. And then Paul goes on and say, but such were some of you. But you were washed. You were delivered by the blood of Jesus, right? Now, what I'm so glad is back in 1980, they didn't look at me and say, oh, brother, love wins. Don't worry about your pornography. Jesus covers you. You just live however you, you can live and just know you're covered. See, are we so ignorant that we think that the blood of Jesus is only powerful enough to get us free from the penalty of sin, but not free from the slavery of sin? I mean, I, I, do we really think our God is that weak? Do we have to make concessions for our God for his lack of power? Because, you know, he just can't. I mean, that's really ridiculous when you think about it. I mean, can I show you where we're out of balance right now? We're, 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 un, we're, 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 uh, we're, un, what's the word? <laughs> Calibrated, excuse me. Let me show you one scripture. Hebrews 12, 14. You, you rarely hear this talked about anymore. Pursue holiness. Now, you say holiness and you freak people out. Okay? You just really do. And there's a good reason for it. Now, first of all, what does the word pursue mean? Here's the word. Pursue means chase after with the intent to apprehend. I want you to look at that definition. Pursue means chase after with the intent to apprehend. That's what I did when I saw Lisa Toscano 34 years ago. I chased after her with the intent to apprehend. And baby, I got it. Okay? Happily married 34 years, right? Now, pursue holiness. Now, first of all, can we address why do we freak out when somebody says holy? Can I address that? Okay. In order to address it, you got to put yourself in the devil's shoes just for 30 seconds. How many of you know the devil can read? Please tell me you know that. Guess what? He can read Aramaic, Hebrew, and Greek. He's read the whole New Testament many more times than any of you. And do you know what he discovered in reading the New Testament? The only description of the church that Jesus is coming back for in the whole New Testament. It's not a relevant church. Is relevance important? Oh yeah, you better believe it. That's why I'm 57 year old that still wears skinny jeans. <laughs> because I wanna relate. I love the younger generation. The old people just think I'm going through midlife crisis. I'm okay with that. I just wanna hit, I wanna tell young people, I love you, okay? That, that, that's my passion, okay? Okay, so, it's, but it's not irrelevant. Relevant is so, you'll never reach people if you're not relevant. He's not coming back for a connected church. Is connection important? Yes. It's not good that man's alone, God said. We need community. Thank God for a pastor who understands that. It's not a leadership church. Is leadership important? Yeah, you'll never get anything accomplished without leadership. No, the only description of the church Jesus has come back for is a holy church. Without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. That's the only description. Now, you've also read the Bible. You're the devil, remember? And you found out the predominant description of God in the whole Bible. Isaiah goes to the throne in Isaiah 6. John goes to the throne in Revelations 5. And there's these massive beings called seraphim. Oh, are they huge. 
One is crying to the other. He's not crying, love, love, love. Is God love? Yeah, you better believe it. He doesn't even have love. He is love. But that's not the characteristic of God that stands above all other characteristics. They're not crying, faithful, faithful, faithful. Is God faithful? Oh, yeah, you better believe it. They're not crying faithful. You know what they're crying? Holy. And they're crying it so loud, they're shaking the doorposts of an auditorium that seats over a billion people in heaven. They're not singing a song making God feel good. They're responding to what they see. Every moment another facet of his greatness is revealed. Now all they can do is cry, holy! Right? Now, you're the devil. You've read this. So the predominant description of God in the whole Bible is holy. The only description of the church needs to come back for us holy. So you go, okay, we got to develop a strategy. So what do you do? You're the devil. You raise up a bunch of mean-spirited preachers and pastors. I mean, these guys don't even like people. Can I tell you, if you don't like people, you have no business teaching the Bible. Go teach geography or science, but don't preach the Bible. You gotta love people to preach the Bible, but these mean-spirited preachers, you know, they were like, they beat us up into their little idea of what holiness was. And for all of them, it was a little different. And they had their little club. And if you weren't walking, like everybody else walks in my club, I will beat you up. And so you know what that, you know what happened? Here's the old proverb, Chinese proverb, scalded cat. The cat that's been scalded by the boiling water fears the cool water. It's a Chinese proverb. What's that proverb say? You pour boiling water on a cat. I don't recommend trying this, but it's true. Pour boiling water on a cat, you will instill such terror in that cat that you put the cool water out that will give it life and he'll run away from the cool water. The devil said, I'm gonna destroy holiness in the church. So, we had a problem because holiness is all over the Bible. So we had a bunch of clever teachers come along and these clever teachers said, we gotta talk about holiness. So you know what they did? They figured out something. They figured out one aspect of holiness they could teach. And he said, you know what? When you get saved, Jesus makes you holy, and that's all the holiness you're ever going to need. He did it for you. Don't worry about it. I mean, don't, don't sweat. We don't want you under any kind of bondage and legalism. And, uh, and, and that's true. We don't want people under bondage and legalism. But, but they're mixing all the language together. Now, right? And we got an illiterate, an illiterate church who's not looked very carefully into the word and they're buying into this and they're going, whoa, yeah. So they lumped all the holiness into one aspect when really there's two different aspects of holiness in the New Testament. Now the first aspect of holiness, now stay with me, this is the one they start teaching, is our positional holiness. Where is that scene? Ephesians chapter one, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be, come on, shout it, church. Holy and without blame before him. Now listen, God did this before you were even born. From the foundation of the world, when the lamb was crucified from the foundation of the world, God said, I'm going to pull me out of people out of the world, and they are going to be set apart from me. They're going to be holy. And you know what? Guess what? You got that position of holiness the day you were saved, and let me tell you something, you will never get more holy. Okay, let me, let me, let me, let me illustrate it. 34 years ago, October 2nd, Lisa Toscana walks down an aisle with a white dress on, right? You following me? She became my wife that day, October 2nd, 1982. 
34 years later, she's not more my wife today than the day I married her, positionally. And you know what? 34 years from today, she will not be more my wife, positionally. It was done on that day, and she's as much as my wife as she'll ever be throughout eternity. But then if you look at my behavior before I met Lisa, I flirted with girls. I got girls from the phone numbers. I asked girls out on dates. But then I got married to Lisa, and my behavior changed. Because you know what? My behavior started reflecting my position as her husband. Now I'm not flirting with girls anymore. I'm not asking for their numbers. Now, did I say, I got to get out of the world? I can never get around a girl again. No. I work with, there are more girls on my team than there are guys. I sit next to women on planes. But I have an appropriate behavior when I'm around them that corresponds with my position. Peter talks about this. Look what Peter says. Peter says, now look, live as children of obedience to God. Do not conform yourselves to the evil desires that govern you in your former ignorance when you did not know the requirements of the gospel. Wow, that's strong. But as the one who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your... Now look at this. Everybody say it. Conduct and manner of living. Peter's not talking about positional. He's talking about behavioral. You still with me? I said, are you still with me? Now, if we go back to Hebrews chapter 12, it makes a lot more sense. Pursue, which means chase after holiness with the intent to apprehend. So is he talking about positional or behavioral? Come on, talk to me. Can't be positional. How can you chase after what you've already got? It's like saying, Lisa, chase after being my wife. She can't. She's been my wife for 34 years. She is never going to be more my wife. She's not talking about positional. He's talking about behavioral. Chase after with the intent to apprehend holiness, without which no man will see the Lord. Now, wait a minute. Everybody's going to see God. The Bible says when he returns, every eye will behold him. The Bible says every knee is going to bow. What is he talking about? Let me explain it to you like this. I have been a United States citizen now for almost 57 years. In my 57 years, I have been under 10 presidents of the United States. I've been under their rule, their jurisdiction, their decisions have affected my life. I've never seen one of them. I've never been in the presence of a president of the United States. There are other Americans. They're in the president's presence every day. They work with him. They're his friends. I've never been in the presence. I've never seen one of them. never been in the presence. They're Christians. They're under the jurisdiction of Jesus. They're under his rule. His decisions affect their life. But they're not in his presence. I'll let Jesus settle this one. These words are read. The person who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who really loves me. And I too will love him and will show, reveal, manifest myself to him. I will let myself clear, be clearly, come on, everybody, seen. seen. Pursue holiness without which no man will see the Lord. I will let myself be clearly seen by him and make myself real to him. You know why people are getting so tired of Christianity? Because it really is boring without his presence. So you know what the holiness legalists did? They made it a club. They said holiness is an end to itself, when in reality, holiness is not an end to itself. It's the doorway into the presence of God. It's a pathway into the presence of God. It's a bridge that brings us into the presence of God. That 
is what every true child of God longs for. Because it's what separates us from anybody else in the whole world, Moses said, is your presence. Do you know what we've done? Can I illustrate what we've done? I want you to, I want you to, I want you to picture this. I hold up my marriage certificate. You know I got a marriage certificate? It says I'm legally married in the state's eyes to Lisa, right? I hold up my marriage certificate. I said, babe, Lisa, I am technically married to you while I'm jumping in bed with other women. Now, I may still technically be married to her, but I guarantee you she is not gonna share with me the intimate secrets and desires and intentions of her heart. I have cut myself off from intimacy with my wife. Do you know what keeps me from committing adultery? Three things. Number one, I fear God, okay? Number two, I'd be dead. She's a sharpshooter, okay? Seriously. She hit a bullseye that big from 115 yards. I'm telling you, she dropped a 14-point buck right in his tracks. She told me, she said, commit adultery, I'll make it painless. You'll be on the 10th hole, and the next thing, you're gone. But you want to know the real reason? It's the third reason. You want to know the real reason? Because I don't ever want to lose intimacy with this amazing woman named Lisa Bevere. I don't ever want to cut myself off from intimacy. I don't ever want her not to share her heart with me. That's what passionately keeps me away from adultery. James makes a statement. He said, to Christians, you're seeking friendship with the world? You are an adulterer. As an adulterer, she would not share with me her heart. I may legally be married, but I guarantee you that marriage is going to dwindle. Watch this. Emma, these past seven months have been incredible. And I mean, honestly, when I saw you seven months ago, I knew. I knew from that moment that I wanted to spend the rest of my life with you. You're kind, beautiful, smart. I, I can't picture a more perfect woman. So, Emma, Lily, Thompson, will you marry me? Yes, 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 yes. 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 I have to see other guys on the side, but yes. Wait, what? Uh, what are the guys? What, what are you talking about? I'm the perfect woman. Just like you said, I'm going to have gourmet meals for us every single night. Our house is going to be perfect. Oh, it's going to be amazing, babe. And I mean, you don't really expect me to be a one-man kind of woman anyway. Uh, no, that's actually like a, a big part of marriage. Like, you and me, together. Yeah, but I can't give up every guy. I mean, that's asking a little much, don't you think? A, a little... A little... I just asked you to marry me. If we're married, you can't see no one else. That, that, no, that, that's- Babe, wait. You, okay, I'm, okay I'm shh. It's okay, listen to me, listen to me. Look at me. I'm sorry, I shouldn't have said that. You're right, I was wrong. Thank I you. totally understand where you're coming from. This is our moment, and we're gonna be so happy together every single day, except once a week. Well, uh, once a week, okay, what, Just no. a fling, once a did week. You, did you not listen to anything every I just year? said? Every other year? No. On a leap year? 
No. Okay, Emma, I, I, I can't. I, I can't. Once a week on a leap year, and you're gonna freak out. Emma, we're, we're done. What? Babe, you were just asking me to marry you. Are you kidding me? Seriously? Really? Okay, it's pretty funny, isn't it? Would any of you ever marry somebody like that? Can I see a show of hands if you say, I'd, oh yeah, I'd marry somebody like that. You need, you need great prayer if you raise your hand. <laughs> All right, so why, why wasn't he gonna marry her? I mean, come on, she loved him more than the other guys. I mean, he was her favorite because she hadn't given him her entire heart. There was still a place reserved for those other guys. You'd never marry a person like that. What makes you think Jesus is coming back for a bride like that? I, I, I just want a little bit of the world even if it is only Friday nights and Saturday nights. If you really believe that, you're as deceived as she was. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Father, in the name of Jesus, I've proclaimed what you've commanded me to proclaim. Now, Holy Spirit, you love every one of these people deeply and dearly. Draw them to Jesus. With your heads bowed, your eyes closed. I know that the American church, we've, we've just tried to get, the end goal has been to pray the sinner's prayer. Just confess Jesus as Savior. But I have news for you. You can confess him Savior. You can believe he died on the cross. You can believe he was raised from the dead. You can believe he's the son of God and confess him the son of God and still not have a covenant relationship with God. Say, John, how can you say that? Well, let's, 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 let's just do this little illustration with your heads bowed. I want you to listen to me. You got a girl, she's dating a guy. She knows he's a great football player. She knows he's got a scar on his head from bicycle wreck he was in. She knows he's excellent athlete, excellent at math. She's been to his house. She's met his siblings. That doesn't give her a covenant relationship with him. It's not until the guy gets down on one knee, opens up the little ring box, like Alec did in that video, and says, will you marry me? Now, at that point, she's got a choice. She can ignore his proposal or say no, and life will continue as is. She'll know about him, know he's a great quarterback, know he's got a scar. She, she can keep going to his house and talking to his siblings, but she's not gonna have a covenant relationship with him. Or she can say yes, and if she says yes, do you know what she, she's gonna do? It means a couple months later, she's gonna walk down the aisle of a church with a white dress on. You know what she's saying? She's saying goodbye to every man on the planet except for the one guy waiting for her. She's giving her entire heart, her entire life. Let me tell you, when Jesus died on the cross, our creator shed every drop of blood in his body on that tree. That was him getting down on one knee, saying, would you be my bride, the bride of Christ? And now at this point, we've got a decision to make. 
we can ignore his proposals, still know he's the son of God, still go to church and meet his true siblings. We can say yes. If we say yes, that means we're gonna do what that bride does. We're gonna give him our entire heart, our entire life. Can I be honest with you? When Lisa walked down that aisle 34 years ago, she and I both messed up the first week, the first year, the first three years, the first 34 years. But one thing that hasn't changed is she gave me her entire heart and it's never changed. That's what I'm talking about, where he is worshiped as God. If you're sitting here today and you'd say, you know, John, truth be told, I believe Jesus is the son of God, but I've never given him my entire heart, my entire life. I wanna give you that chance right now. I want you to throw your hand up in the air with every head bowed, every eye closed. If you say, John, I've never, I've not done that. I wanna do that right now. Throw up your hands right now all over the building. Wow, put them up high. No bride's ever been ashamed of her husband. I see the hands up in the air. Thank you, thank you. Put them up really high. If you're in here today and you say, John, I've not been chasing after holiness. And today I see that I'm missing out on intimacy with God and I want that intimacy. If that's you, throw your hand up right now. Say, I'm gonna start pursuing holiness. Put it up high. Don't be ashamed. Don't, nobody needs to be ashamed. We're here to help not hurt. Just throw your hand up high. Boy, look at the hands. Okay, put your hands back down. Can we all pray this prayer together? Right there, the Holy Spirit can meet you at your seat. I want you to pray this with me. I want all the people that raise their hands to pray this, but I want everybody else in the building to pray with those people that raise their hands. That way, all of us pray together. Say this with me. God in heaven, Thank you so much for sending Jesus to die for me. Forgive me for living life my way, apart from you, my creator. But this day, I give my spirit, soul, and body, everything I am, everything I have, to you, Jesus. And Holy Spirit, I open my life to you. Fill me. And help me, empower me to live a godly life. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Now thank him for what he's done.